Hi there. I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the Troxell Podcast. I'm Evan Troxell. And on this episode, I have a conversation with Donna Sink. Donna is an architect in Indianapolis. She's also known for her contributing editor role at Archonnect. And she's also a co-host of the Archonnect Sessions podcast. And I've been listening to that for years. I've been reading her writing and editorial, both at Archonnect and on Twitter. And I, I've always enjoyed Donna's point of view. And she had a recent tweet that went out talking about payment for architects based on successful outcomes, a la the healthcare industry shift that has been happening as of late, which we get into quite a bit in this episode because that really prompted me to kind of come back at her idea with some additional thoughts that I've been having along with some colleagues in the office that I work in. And so I thought this would be a great conversation to share and have out loud with other individuals who have not been in the room, but to kind of bounce ideas back and forth and see where that goes. So this is a fantastic conversation around a potential different business model for architects and then how we could start to shift our profession in that direction. Let's jump right into the conversation with Donna Sink. I hope you enjoy it. Where did your idea come from about having a shared outcomes kind of a contract or I don't know, I don't know how you want to actually state it, but maybe you can, you could frame the conversation based on that. And then we could just talk about how this, how this happened, how, how this conversation is coming out of that. I feel like the, it's all part of a much larger topic within our discipline, um, Mm -hmm. which is for me, the, um, Something that I always react very strong, strongly to and against is the idea that architects are, you know, we're driven by our egos and we only want to design the things that we want to design the way we want them and not to do things that make our clients happy. And I have always approached architecture as a, in a way, a service mm-hmm. industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me, that goes back to a very early So I went to college in 1985 is when I started architecture school. And in my third year of architecture school, I took a studio where we focused on post-occupancy evaluations. And so the there was a tweet about how architects would do better work if we would always do a post-occupancy evaluation. And I kind of responded, well, who's going to pay for that? Because I know from 30 years of practice that post-occupancy evaluations are typically not included in any way in part of our fee. But right. I also know from my third year in architecture school that People love to talk about the buildings that they inhabit and what works for them and what doesn't. So this studio I took was basically the first six weeks was just doing POEs, going out to buildings around the city. This was in Tucson, Arizona, and talking to people who had had recently begun occupying a recently designed building about their experiences, you know, what worked well and what didn't and what what things were too far apart and where was noise coming from that wasn't working out because it interrupted their workday. It was mostly offices we were doing. And so that informed my design work from the very beginning of my design career. And I know that there are all kinds of architects, but I think that the vast majority of of us are people who want our clients to be happy. We want our owners and people that use our buildings to enjoy them and like them. Yeah. Um, And so you and I just got to talking then on Twitter about how how could that be folded into a service in some way? Because as I said, post-occupancy evaluations are typically not... There's no fee for that, not for the architects, certainly. 
so yeah, so how can we be as architects responsible to our owners and to the buildings and to continuing a relationship that we all can benefit from afterwards? And that's a whole lot of ideas all shoved into a four minute discourse. So <laughs> yeah, and I, I it takes me back to actually a couple different things. So so there's there's the relationship part that you just talked about, and then there's this whole idea of post occupancy, right? So. I, I was at a, a Tech Plus conference here in LA uh, maybe a year ago or so, and Dr. Rapalinanda from HKS, she's the director of research there, gave a presentation. Mm-hmm. And they're a research group operating within HKS, and they, they do all kinds of really interesting kind of living laboratory kind of work where they're studying how people use space. They're studying the outcomes of their design. They're trying to link outcomes to design work, right? Where I think that's really where this kind of motivation comes from, right? Which is why do a POE at all? And it's hopefully to Mm -hmm. inform the next, right? And so, and that's why, that's why what we do is called practice. But she really talked about it as, you know, this whole, just even the naming of it is kind of silly, right? Calling it post-occupancy. She actually just redefined that as life, Right. That pre-occupancy is sculpture. Right. Right. That's actually beautiful. Yeah, I thought so, too. And so and so when when she she's talking about working in design, we should always be thinking during occupancy because occupancy is the longest stretch of a project's life. Right. And so you're, you're taking a very kind of empathetic approach and saying when we're doing this work and we're doing it as service to or in service of a particular set of functions or people and all those things that we're actually thinking during occupancy and how will it be used. And I think that's one thing that that architects do strive to do, and, and especially with that service kind of approach. And so it's kind of sad when we leave so much on the table and don't do the POE, right? Because right. then up until that point, all of this stuff is just hypothesis and the building is just a prototype. And if you don't actually study how the hypothesis and the prototype play out, then what are you doing? Like you're just reinventing the same potential bad problems every single time. Absolutely. And then you're also feeding into a culture in my mind that says that when something starts to get worn out or, or worn or, or used, that it's, it becomes much less valuable. You, you know, that we focus out. on this yeah. idea of the, the day that the building is finished, we take the photograph for the magazine and that's it. And then it's perfect and it's in stasis and nothing will ever be as good or perfect again. But, you know, you look at, I mean, cultures across the world where, and all kinds of vernacular building where, the maintenance of the building is just part of the life of the building. And I love that you use that phrase that post-occupancy is really just life. Like, yeah, this is the life of your home or your building or your whatever it is, is going to include wear and patina and all these things that sometimes we really value, but then sometimes we don't. And I think we need to, you know, come to an understanding as a culture that that perfect photograph on the day of, of substantial completion that's a moment in time it's an event. and it's the, yeah. the ongoing life of the building that is interesting and that we should be striving to make quality, you know? Yeah. The, the, well, what she stated after that, I thought this, this was pretty beautiful too. It was just that occup- occupancy is the oxygen of your building. Exactly. Yeah. Because that, that first event, that photograph is that kind of hello world moment. But then yeah. after that is when everything actually happens and, and all of those hypotheses get tested. Right. So. Yes. Yes. 
It's a really beautiful notion. And that's the beginning of the building, not the end. Right. And, you know, from an architecture practice standpoint, just as a firm, we get most of our work through uh, former clients or recommendations. Yeah. So you want your client, you want your owner to be happy because then you will get more work from them or you will get recommendations for additional work for other owners or from other clients. But then, yeah, the fact is if you design a building and five years later, the, the occupant of it is unhappy, you're not going to get those um, recommendations. How can, how can we do, as you said earlier, how can we learn from the things we have done? How can we go back and evaluate them in a way that, that we can then learn from them and move forward with better rules, better ways of going about designing? I mean, I've been practicing for a long time. So like I said, I just have a lot of experience that I've obviously learned by osmosis. But, you know, is there a checklist or, or is there, you know, what's the, where, where's the checklist that says, Number one, what are materials holding up? You know, number two, are are um, environmental systems doing what they were supposed to do for as long as they're supposed to? You know, warranties, all that stuff. But also, how happy are the people that engage with the building every day? The people that are yeah. in there. Yeah. So okay. So let's let's go back to your tweet where this all started. This whole conversation. Okay. So so you, I'm going to quote you here. It says a comparison. Hospitals now get, I think, some of their payment based on successful outcomes after the operation. Did the patient recover fully? or have to continue coming back for complications? What if architecture was post-funded by a shared sustainability fund for outcomes? This is where my gears were. They had been turning for, for a few years now. Like I, was, like I mentioned in the beginning, a couple of friends of mine, that I, colleagues that I work with, who are some of my favorite people, we brainstormed an idea for a potential business model for architectural practice. And just kind of playing off what you were just talking about, there's mechanics behind like a strategy. How how do we actually do what you're talking about? But right. there's also the shared success. It mm-hmm. it has mm-hmm. to be a partnership and the partnership right. has to be based on relationship. And this is where I kind of go back to my own personal experience of working for Apple. And I think I've shared this on the podcast before, but this idea of how do you build relationship in a transactional kind of a space where so so the, when I was training for Apple, they, they basically, and it was profound to me at the time, and I think it still kind of sounds profound because most, most of the capitalistic ways in which we operate are not based on relationship. They're based on the transaction. And so they would draw the comparison that if you go into a Best Buy and somebody buys a computer from Best Buy, that's where the relationship ends. In an Apple store, if you purchase a computer, that is where the relationship begins. And they were very kind of staunch in that point of view and saying, uh, you know, first of all, you're going to come into the store three, five times before you purchase. And so every time you come in, there's got to be, you know, no pressure, no one's on commission. So we're just here to answer your questions. And you build, you start to build trust. You're not building relationship, you're building trust at that point, hopefully. And then once you purchase, you know, you decide to spend a bunch of money on this thing, whether it's a car, computer, a house, you know, a piece of architecture, like whatever that thing is, how do you then keep the relationship going? And so they would offer classes, they offer support, you know, they open the store early for people to come in and learn something. There was all these different kind of tactics that they had in place to make sure that you enjoyed the thing that you purchased from them and would hopefully, like you said, this referral system of or this word of mouth, like you're going to come back and you're going to do it again, hopefully. Now, that doesn't happen a lot with architecture, but it does happen with certain client types where they're building on a campus or they're, they're developers or whatever. 
It's not necessarily going to happen with residential or, you know, maybe sometimes, but very rarely. So yeah. how do you build a relationship over time? And so this is where my colleagues and I started thinking like, okay, so what if you actually had your pay or your contract was based on the performance of the building over its lifetime? How do exactly. you stretch out a contract to be instead of three or five years just this very initial thing to having that relationship and making sure that clients are happy over the lifetime of their project. Because when do you even decide to do a POE? Is it three months after the building opens? Six months? One year? But then what? Where does it go from there? I'll I'll stop talking. I I want you to jump in. It's okay. I mean, there's so much to go into here. Um, I mean, one of the very first times I heard of this notion or thought about this notion really was um, specifically in relationship to sustainability. And um, I think it was the Bullet Center in in Seattle, or maybe that one was the one that started this conversation for me. This idea that if you're you're selling someone on investing now in a, a solar energy system or a, a, um, a thermal, a geothermal heat system or something, and you're selling it to the client on the, on the merits of it, paying itself back in 10 years, or they're going to have, you know, you're going to renovate your building and you're going to have 50% lower electrical costs because of this renovation. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something you can very easily test five, 10 years later, right? You check their electric bills now, and then in a year you check them and in a year you check them and either you've achieved it or you haven't. So in that way, it would be very easy to set up a payment system where it would be over time, you get more money, assuming that they have actually that, that you've met the goals that you say that the building will. So in terms of, you know, the, the measurable things, the sustainability, the life of materials, the life of mechanics, that's all very easy to do. It's this personal relationship sense that, as you said, is much a much harder thing to quantify. But it's really interesting. And I just want to throw out this one idea that I've been thinking about as I've been thinking about this conversation is um, I I recall years and years ago hearing someone say that I think it's a popular notion that when you're trying to get a new client, you would offer them a a reduced rate. Mm -hmm. Like, give me a try. See if you like my work. I'll give you a reduced rate to do this first job. Mm. And this this guy said, no, the, the thing to do is to say, I'm a professional. And so you should pay me the full rate now. But if you like what I do and you come back to me for a second project, I'll give you a reduced rate then, mm. because then we know that we work well together. Right. We know what the you know we know what the what our relationship is. We know how well we work together, and we know that what we, each other needs, and it shortcuts a whole lot of that sort of learning process time. So um, I always loved that idea that you know the 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 first job is full price because it's just a transaction. But as you build the relationship, you can start to then. Lower, lower your fee, lower your how much time you know it's going to take. It just seems like a smarter way to go about it. Yeah, it seems natural because you are going to understand preferences that you're just going to mm-hmm. be able to design right into that other project rather than have to figure all that out through the discovery process of the first one over and over again. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, going back to my initial tweet about hospitals, and that comes from a little bit of actually doing post-occupancy evaluation, but I was working on a master plan for a local hospital where we interviewed a lot of their workers to see what kind of staff space they needed. Now, this was all pre-pandemic. So, of course, with the pandemic, everything has changed. But um, this was several years ago. But the notion was that, that the way that hospitals were billing at this point was not just billing for procedures, but billing for outcomes, that you don't just bill for the surgery 
and then that's the end. You have a price for the surgery, but then if the patient has to come back again because they have an infection, if they have to come back because something's not healed properly, that all adds up the cost. And so the insurer doesn't want to have to keep paying for that. So the hospital get, will get paid more if their outcome is better. If the patient doesn't have to keep coming back, the hospital will then actually get paid more by the insurance company. And so thinking about that in terms of architecture, like you said, I'm, I'm going to do this building and it's going to make your worker productivity is going to go up and you're going to have fewer sick days because people are going to have more windows. You know, there's all these things yeah. that we can, I think, try to guarantee or say we can provide with our design and then actually measuring those becomes much more challenging in terms of spiritual you know mental health outcomes it's much more challenging true but you actually have to do that work and you have to aggregate that data over time and you have to have it inform what you continue to do and so this is probably easier for firms that do a lot more projects but i will just throw it out there like how many firms are actually doing this at all because I think it is, it just gets to that hypothesis stage and then we start again. And then we get to that hypothesis stage and then we start again. And there's so much of architecture is starting from the blank sheet of paper because obviously there's differences in projects. I'm not trying to say everything we do is the same, especially where I work and what we practice in. You know, every client is different to some extent, but there's also lots of stuff that is the same every single time. And there are standards that have been created and there's you know, if you're working in a school, there's district standards and there's a lot of stuff that doesn't have to be recreated every single project that comes along. But I think overall, I will just as architects, we're really bad at collecting and then aggregating lots of different data types and finding the, you know, doing kind of that research based work to figure mm-hmm. out where we're going next. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that office furniture companies, mm-hmm. Knoll and, and Steelcase, and these guys seem like they do a lot more of that, don't they? Yes. Like they, they look at how people use their furniture and then come back 10 years later to see what needs to be replaced and what. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I was, I've talked to Steelcase recently and then, and they're building these sensors into their furniture, but they're also using their own showrooms and their own workspaces as a laboratory which I think is part of the thing that makes a difference. Like Karen Timberlake is really good at this. Their office is a lab with all of the Mm -hmm. sensors outfitted and they learn from themselves and that informs the design work that they do. And I, that that's what Steelcase does as well. That's interesting. I, so Karen Timberlake, I used to live in Philly and I remember when they moved into their, what was then their new office, Mm -hmm. but since then they have moved to yet another new office. So I didn't know that about them, but I know that they are one of the few architects that have really committed to a research arm, right? Like they have their, I don't remember what it's called. You probably do. (laughs) I don't know what it's called either. I I haven't looked recently, but I do know that they have started making like their own devices and Mm -hmm. they put those out on the IOT market, you know, the internet of things so that they basically, you know, building operators can implement these systems into their own facilities um, so that they can also learn, you know, it plugs into the building management system and they can learn from their occupants and the, their specific site and context. So, yeah, you're right. They have invested heavily into that, and it has really informed, especially on the sustainability side, you know, the energy management, all those kinds of things, mm-hmm. uh, what they do and why they do it. Mm-hmm. Thinking about the idea of using your office as a lab or using your showroom as a as a lab for, for trying stuff out, I I do have a friend who's a very small practitioner in Kentucky 
he does amazing work. And I think that he did his own office in a way that he could show people, you know, here's an idea I wanted to try out. But I think that he has also built a relationship and a reputation with clients that they will allow him to test some things on their projects, knowing that it's a a test, right? Knowing that, okay, we're going to try an experiment here and see how it works out. Um, And I think that that someone like Kieran Timberlake or other firms that sort of invest in this kind of research can probably, again, offer that to their clients and say, you know, we want to try this thing. We think it'll be a great success, but we don't. It might not be. But if you trust us to try it with you, you know, you can make it a happy outcome for everyone. It doesn't have to be a zero sum game to design it. Right. It, it It can be something where you you test a notion and they like it or you test it and they don't like it. So you have some kind of feedback where you're able to come back and, and change it or fix it. Or, you know, I'm thinking about um, just this is, again, more on on notions of using different materials or, or using aesthetic material ideas that maybe will or won't work out like a living green wall. I mean, that's kind of an obvious one. Like a green wall is something that it's always a test. It's always an experiment to see if it's going to work out or not. And for the owner, is it something that will be more of a pain in the butt to keep up and keep watered or not? (laughs) Right. Totally. I mean, that that's a driver for so many decisions in the design process, especially on public work where, you know, go to Scandinavia, every roof's a green roof, go to Singapore and like they're putting green roofs on buses now because they don't have any buildings <laughs> left, right? So it's amazing. And it, and over here, it's like a green roof. What are you talking about? No effing yeah. way that we're putting a green roof yeah. on this building. Why? Because we've never done that before and somebody doesn't know how to take care of it. And what are they going to have to get a lawnmower up there and they're going to weed whacker? Yeah. And it's like, it is it's an incredibly difficult conversation to have because the typically the immediate answer is no way. There's no way we're putting this living... It, no matter what the checklist of benefits are, it usually comes down to we haven't done this before. So if you can find a client who is willing to – I think there's a couple different categories here. Like what you're talking about where you're actually trying out materials and you're trying to see how they respond to – because getting people to maintain a building is hard enough, right? And then adding right. something else on top of that that they actually have to go out and take care of on a regular basis – is a whole other level. But there's also just kind of the data collection side of things, right? Where it's like, you don't have to do anything. And this isn't, there's not even a like or dislike. It's just let's collect data so that we understand ourselves better kind of a thing. And to, to me, when, you, when you're talking about that side of the conversation, you've got to figure out a way to provide value for the client as well as yourself, right? So that data could be really useful for you as an architect, especially on the next project. And especially if you have 10 projects that you're doing this on, but what's the client get out of it? Why should they go through the extra rigmarole or the extra expense to put the sensors in if that data isn't going to benefit them somehow, right? So how can that I think it's it's easier with certain client types like healthcare, right, where they want mm-hmm. to know how they can optimize right, exactly. nurse nursing steps every day, right, versus a school where it's like, yeah, how are we going to maintain that because I've got one guy in 10 schools, right, to go around yeah. and, and do this. It's almost like it, it's something that operates on either a very small or a very large scale, right? Mm-hmm. It's either a client, you have a personal relationship and you're working on their house and it's something that you can, you, you'll go back and, and see them every, yeah. every few months anyway, because you're friendly with them. And then it's on the level of a hospital, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why someone like Steelcase can do it. They're right. a big company, you know, they can work it into their, um, 
how their how their company works, their business procedures, or yeah, very very small scale, you know, sole practitioner or small. Yeah, <laughs> it, it it reminds me of um, a roofer I heard of once, a roofer who would do a residential roof and then would call the owner you know, the month before their one year warranty was up, uh-huh. call them back and say, Hey, I'm just checking in to see if you have anything that needs to be done while you're still under warranty. Let me know. So smart. And yeah, so that, that gives the owner more comfort and optimism and trust about the project. And then it lets the roofer learn where are the failure, you know, where are the things that his crew has tended to not yeah. do as well as they should have. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a huge deal, right? That's super smart to think of it that way. Yeah. Super smart. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I agree. I think one one of the advantages a company like Steelcase has is by deciding to do the data collection, and because they're not just working with a small or a big client, they're working with lots and lots of clients, which include architects and actual facilities, right? They could go to a campus yes. or they could go to an architect and partner with them. They're then collecting so much data that they can use that to inform everybody's decisions that they work with. And so then it adds value to their offering because they're giving you informed data based on actual use. So they're saying these kinds of conference rooms work in these kinds of environments. This kind of furniture works in these kinds of environments. And that adds value because it gives me peace of mind deciding to recommend their system to a client. But it's also real data that it's not just somebody's hypothesis. They're saying, no, based on the last 12 months of activity in this range of client type, in these types of urban areas or, or whatever you're looking for, they can say, here's how it works. And right. and you really can't argue with data, right? That like That's the beauty of it. Yeah, it's funny. You saying that just makes me realize that, you know, I spent five years working not as an architect, but working in the facilities department of a art museum. Yeah. So I was on the facility side of things and in that role could see could see how important these these long relationships with suppliers were. Mm. I mean, <laughs> having, you know, having Herman Miller come in there and deal with our office furniture, it was it was an enormous amount of knowledge and experience and ability that our in-house staff didn't have to have because we could bring them in. Yeah, that's huge. that's a big deal. So, okay, so now have you thought about any kind of practical ways that this kind of idea that was in your original tweet, like how could that actually happen for architects? Like how would you put that kind of a system in place if you could to get paid based on these outcomes? I'm going to fall back on what I just said about it either being very large or very small and say that from a from a larger standpoint, it seems to me it's more driven by things like the mechanical systems and the the energy expenditures of mm-hmm, the building. Mm-hmm. But from a very small standpoint, it's going to be, yeah, having a personal relationship with someone and saying, you know, I'll work on your kitchen remodel. And if a year from now you find that the, you know, <laughs> there's nowhere to plug in a toaster or whatever, yeah. it's, you don't have to pay me the additional fee, but I'll, you know, I'll hold back some of that fee for a year. I, I, it's mm. really, it's a really challenging thing to think about contractualizing Yeah, because I, I do it already with my small scale residential clients. You know, I keep mm-hmm. in touch with them and I know what's going on, but they don't, it's not about my fee being withheld, though, or about me getting a better, a better fee late, later. The, the, the payback is in recommendations that they make. Sure. So contractualizing it within a larger 
context, I think, would have to be around things like energy efficiency. You know, how often do you have to turn on the lights in a space that I've designed for you saying you can just light it with natural daylight, but then if it turns out um, they have to actually keep the lights on all the time, you know, how do I not get paid as much a year, two years, five years later? Yeah. I have not really thought, no, about how to do it contractually. See, I think I think this is where like the technology side of this podcast comes in. So th- this is this is where our minds started to go when we were thinking about this because there's two sides to everything. There's there's the one side which is like how do you fundamentally change the way that a project is contracted and how do you even decide that it's safe and not risky to do that in a company right. that's been operating for 80 plus years? that's always done it this one way. And and that goes for like every architecture firm out there for the most part, right? It's like we have this fee-based structure based on these milestones and and that's it, right? Now there's what I've seen with technology is there's an ability now to think about or divide payments into much smaller amounts. And this goes along with this kind of analogy that I have of streaming music or streaming video like netflix right so so the idea is now bandwidth was always a a huge issue as we were growing up with the internet because you downloaded files and the file was this huge you know if it's video it was this big thing um and to combat that we just made the video smaller and smaller as far as like pixel real estate on the screen Mm -hmm. and so now that's not an issue and why is that it's because the files can be broken up into these seemingly infinite amounts and they could just get doled out as necessary, right? To create enough right. buffer so that you can watch or listen to the thing. And so when you think about like the way that files are now delivered and the way that they're streamed, I think we can also draw the analogy to currency because of things like cryptocurrency. So mm-hmm. I was looking into like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and Bitcoin by definition, like, or, you know, when it was being designed can be divided, like the smallest amount is called a milli Bitcoin and it's 100 millionth of a Bitcoin yeah. <laughs> versus a dollar, right? You can divide it down into one one hundredths, right? One cent is the lowest right. you can go. So if you can now divide some currency into a hundred millionth of a unit now like that currency is streamable and it you're not reliant upon you know i I guess even at at one one hundredth it would probably still be fine but the idea now is that i think money has the ability to be streamed because of bitcoin because it is it is just like a digital version and using blockchain which is the ledger system it doesn't get corrupted. There's no like question about where that money's coming from or going to. And I think one of the beauties of a system like this is once you've kind of hooked it up, it can be bi-directional. And so going back to the idea of building performance, if the building is performing well, if it's performing as advertised, right, money can be flowing to you. And if it's not, the consequences could be that it's flowing to them, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so and so now I think if currency is streaming, now there is an incentive to not lose the money, right, on the architect's side during the, the course of this relationship. And think about Tesla owners, right? What what happens when 
I, I've seen it on Twitter all the time. I don't own a Tesla, so I, I don't know for sure. But I've seen this over and over again. My car got new features today. Have you seen this? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Operating system upgrades over the air. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, yeah. the car is hooked up to your house Wi-Fi. It gets an update yep. or it's on cellular. Yep. Boom. It's like you've got ludicrous mode all of a sudden, right? Yep. And you didn't have that yesterday. What if yep. your building was the same? Why can't it be? We're talking about computer-controlled hardware in a building. The building management system is all on the network. And so right. why can't an architect be incentivized to continually make that better mm-hmm. and deliver upgrades overnight, over time, and the better that building performs, base the contract on that and just get paid as it happens rather than some lump sum for a hypothesis up front or some averaged out graph over in the future. So I I, I get this idea, but I mean, I, I think and I think it's amazing. And I love the idea that, yeah, there's there's like a, a pool of value that is your Bitcoin or whatever, that if the building's performing, it's flowing to me, the architect. And if it's not performing well, it's flowing back to the owner and you have a shared interest in that. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm still getting hung up on the idea of how do you measure that other part of what we do as architects, which yeah. is bring joy to people's lives yeah. through the built environment, right? Like no, how, do you, absolutely. how do you upgrade the carpeting overnight? You, you know. Yep. No, absolutely. <laughs> I think there's a, like an actual data performance side of things, but there's multiple other arms to this as well that are not considered in this yeah and and but it also then comes to a place where the market the 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 marketplace has to understand that yes good energy performance has value and ease of access for your workers so they don't have to commute long dates or whatever that that has value and then just that your employees feel happy that has value you know that 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 mental um, those those fuzzy logic things that are hard to quantify that that does have value and that design does have a part in imparting that value in, Ab- in making that value ha- absolutely exist. yeah I mean and that's where architects can make a big difference right sure. it's a it's a it's acknowledging that all of those different realms have value and um, we have to work in all of them mm-hmm. we have to be successful on all of them <laughs> to really make a great piece of architecture that's true and and I think I think one of the things that I don't want to say push back on, but I think that the, the data side of it is where architects have, have probably not done the most or what they should be doing Absolutely. as far as in the environment goes. Um, it's much easier to point at something and say like, well, that's an amazing museum because of the way it makes people feel. And like, I think there's obvious examples of where good architecture really shines from the aspects that you're talking about that are a lot more touchy-feely, right? Which is absolutely yeah. important. Yeah. And then at the same time, we we just reject the the data side of things, or we have historically. I think we do, yes, because we do very much want to make people feel happy and feel joy through our buildings. So we reject that data really has any part to do with that, but it obviously does. Mm-hmm. You know, I I always think about the like the warmth on a stone wall that it feels wonderful and warm in the winter when you're chilly, but then. In the summer, it's just hot and reflective, and it and you just wish why why isn't there a tree here? You know the 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 data that can be made into data relates related to what's the ambient temperature of that day, how many cold cloudy days have there been the day you know in the days before? Like it's it is all related to some kind of data that we can quantify, and this may be a bit of a leap, but my sister is a doctor. And she said that one of the, the she was she participated in a study where they 
um, we're trying to get people to eat more vegetables. Like you can say, eat more vegetables. It's better for you. There's more fiber. You know, there's there's it, it, there's all these reasons why it's better for your heart, better for it. But ultimately, the way that they found they could get the most people to eat more vegetables was to ask them, okay, did you eat vegetables yesterday? Yes. And how did you feel today? Mm. You feel pretty good? And mm. they would say, yeah, I feel pretty happy today. Yeah, to tie those and things together. Would, you have to tie those things together. Exactly. Right. That if you don't, don't say, oh, it's about fiber, but say, oh, you know, do you feel good? And if you feel happy when you eat vegetables, maybe that's a good reason to keep eating them without mm. saying your heart rate is, has to go down. And so you have to eat your vegetables because yeah. it's good for you. Yeah. You know, it's yep. really about that. Yeah. That, um, getting the data from where they are willing to, to give it or to engage with it, I guess, is the question. It makes me think of, uh, <laughs> I, I'm sorry to do this. I brought, bring it back to Apple again. One of the things that I've, I've noticed over time that they do like with their phones is they never tell you what, what's in the guts of the phone. Mm -hmm. They never tell you how much RAM it has or how fast the processor is. Lots of other manufacturers do that, but it's because they don't, they don't want to hang you up with that kind of data. They want you to feel like it's the best phone you've ever used. And they're going to do that right. by making all the things on the inside work how they need to rather than tell you about it. It's just going to work. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so I think that's yeah. kind of what, what you're getting at here, which is you're tying right. an emotion, you're, you're a, a state of yes. being back to a, a behavior, right? And you're exactly. reinforcing the behavior with those outcomes. And so- yes. I wonder, like, how do you start to quantify those things architecturally? So if you're a doctor, yeah, when the patient comes in or maybe there's a survey, there's an app, I mean, maybe it could work similarly for architects, but it reminds me of like going into the, to the airport when we used to be able to do that. And you go into the bathroom and, and there's just like a three button thing next to the hand towels that says like, is the bathroom clean, dirty, you know, like right. there's like two or three options. I yeah. wonder if there's things like that in our lives that you can push based on how you feel in certain locations. I, you know, I don't know. I'm just trying to think out loud, like how do you actually start to do that for architects and for yeah. inhabitants of our spaces? Not, they're not our spaces. They're their spaces. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Inhabitants of the spaces that we hopefully provide for them. Well, yeah. um, I just this morning and I live in Indianapolis, they put out a call on Twitter for um, the next, we have a bus rapid transit line coming into play uh -huh. And we have one leg of it completed, the red line, and the next line is the purple line. And so they just this morning on Twitter put out a call for people, this is how I understand it at least, to go out and walk along the purple line and find places where the mobility for pedestrians and people with um, accessibility issues is impaired or difficult mm. and report it back to the city so that they can make sure to really you know, so address those things. Crowdsourcing that data. It's crowdsourcing. Exactly. That's exactly right. It's crowdsourcing that that information or that experience. And there's got to be a way to do that. Yeah. Within buildings. And, and I mean, I mean, I'll go back to what I said at the very beginning of this conversation when I was, you know, 20 years old and doing a post occupancy evaluation as an architecture student, the people in the building were told that we were coming and they were sort of told, you know, spend the next week thinking really about how you might, what you might tell these people. And back then, of course, we didn't have apps. But, you know, I, I can imagine the people in that building at that time sitting there, like having their lunch at the break room and saying, oh, this room's really dark. I should tell the architect that. Like if there was an app where you could put that in at that moment yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and say, yeah, this room is not comfortable for me right now. And this is why that's a you could you could crowdsource so much data that way. Well, we work did that. Right. They do that with their with their work environments because it's all 
you know, you just go in and you use whatever you need to use when you need to use it. And you kind of, you, they have a, a system set up for you to reserve spaces depending on your needs. Right. Right. But then after you use the space, they do have an app that was like, okay, so did you yeah. use the technology? Was it comfortable temperature wise? Was the lighting okay? There's several questions right. Right. that they ask you and the, you can't ask too many questions, right? Cause you just too much. But you can ask the right questions, and this starts to get me to think about when you are aggregating or collecting this data, I would imagine that the quality of the question really matters. <laughs> so it, it, it can't, and, and it'll, it'll really change the way what data gets presented to you, I would imagine. So when you're, when you're telling somebody that you're coming and to think about the way they use their space, and I, I wonder how that changes things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just not in the moment, so it's different. Yeah, it's complicated. I mean, and and people are complicated. And there's so many variables that we're taking, you know, are because there's, there's temperature, there's a thermostat, when there's 50 people in the room, everybody's running at their own temperature, everybody's got a different metabolism, everybody's got a different amount of clothing on, like so and 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 and. there's so many different variables here. And, And when you start to personalize it, to that granularity, I I could imagine that it's all over the map as far as the the kind of feedback that you're going to get. Absolutely. Hmm. I mean, this hospital project I worked on where we were interviewing the staff to find out how their workspaces worked for them. A, a lot of the survey responses would be, uh, you know, I hate my workspace. And you would dig into it a little and find out it's just because they sit right under an air conditioning vent and they're cold all the time. Right. Like that's the, oh, that's the only problem. Yeah. But the way it manifests in their mind is everything about this place is just uncomfortable. And it's, it's, yeah, I, I hate working here, <laughs> even though it's a very simple fix, right? Yeah. Just shift the, the air conditioning blades. So that poor lady is not freezing at her work every day. Right. <laughs> like, right. There's got to be an algorithm that could work this out. Well, and then right? there's and then there's hormones, right? And then there's there's so there's there's body weight. There there's so many things that play into this. Oh yes. my gosh, yeah. So it has to be kind of personalized, and then you get into the data privacy kind of stuff, <laughs> which is like, right. what well, do I share? Exactly right. What can I share? Exactly. What should? Yeah, there's yeah. yeah. Wow, it's it's so complicated. Mm-hmm. That's and and arch- as if architecture wasn't complicated enough or complex enough already. So I guess when I when I now that I start to think about this, I start to think, well, how does this change the makeup of a firm as far as like the staff? If we were talking about making changes to buildings over time at a more fine grained yeah. level, who's on your staff now? Yeah, you need it. Well, so there was a, a when healthcare designs first sort of really started amping up. Was it like ten years ago, fifteen years ago? There was a. I remember an article and a lot of talk in the business about nurses coming coming on to architecture staff, like nurse, right. women, people that. And I say women because nurses are generally mostly female. But the woman who has um, been a nurse and worked her way up to the floor charge nurse, whatever, would come on to an, an architecture firm like um, like an HOK or whoever, and be part of the staff designing the hospital because it's someone who knows how the workers there use the space. Right. 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 You need people that have experience in whatever kind of facility it is that you're, that you're housing in your design. Um, I think you need social, you know, social workers. I mean, sorry, but I'm going to go back to public school teachers, how they, you know, they need to understand how a child learns to read, but they also can infer from knowing how the child dresses and if they come to school hungry and if they've had a good night's sleep, you know, they have to be able to be social workers that sort of analyze all this stuff and say, these are the reasons why 
this is not working so well for this person. So I think you need a, yeah, you need someone who's like a social, um, a social scientist, right? Yep. I mean, they say we're marriage counselors already, right? When we do houses for people. So (laughs) psychologists, marriage counselors. Yeah, absolutely. Psychologists. Yeah. And I also think that there's like the data side of things, data analysts, there's got to be programmers who can tweak code and, and absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. And, um, Every project is a, it's as, and I, you alluded to this at the beginning of our conversation that it's, you're sort of starting with a, a huge learning curve at the beginning of every project. Mm-hmm. It seems like there should be a way to not have to do that. So, so drastically. Yeah. So the, the, the people that can, that are knowledgeable within that realm and maybe not as knowledgeable of design, but are knowledgeable of things like function and data and how to collect it. And that's, that's the people that you need on your team. And it seems to me like firms in general are pretty, um, I don't want to say against that, but they're really reluctant to push in that, those yeah. directions. Then I start to think of like what, for example, I read, I've read a book previously called Drive by Dan Pink, you know, and it's about, all about intrinsic mm-hmm. motivation. Yep. Yep. And it's like the science says this, that carrots and sticks don't work. The science says this, yet corporate America insists that carrots and sticks work, right? Every incentive program ha- is based on on carrots and sticks. And so the architect's reluctance to hire or to put on staff those positions to do that kind of data analysis or that coding or whatever it, whatever it requires to be able to learn to get the insight from the, the whatever does get collected is just kind of mind-boggling mm-hmm. to me because it's just like, well, let's turn the blind eye to that. Like, we really don't want to go in that direction because we're so comfortable doing what we do. And I, I guess that's what this whole this whole idea is like. We could talk about this idea all the time. We could talk about the idea of d- developing a relationship and collecting data and making it mutually beneficial over the life of a project and making it perform better and seeing how that's going to influence the next project. But how do we actually do that in our profession? How do... <laughs> How does somebody shift to a new way of of doing this kind of work <laughs> when it's like we're so busy doing the work that we're doing? I, I That, to me, is where things totally break and the, the wheels fall off the cart. So can I can I go to one of my favorite comparisons and talk about NASA and putting a man on the moon and the space agency? And when Kennedy said we're going to get a man on the moon within this decade— a huge amount of forces and and capital came to bear on making that happen. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think that if we wanted, if we want to push for a new way of practice, there has to be a way for it to be paid for. And it may be that it's the general public good in meaning that the government is paying for it, Mm -hmm. right? That there's a research grant to firms to do this kind of work to figure out, the, the housing solutions and and um, and with COVID now, we've got a, a whole new way we're going to have to think about how offices work, if they're going to work at all. Right. And I think the way to make that work in the market is to have someone be funding it. And that probably means a huge entity like the government. Mm, that's <laughs> you know, I don't know idea. who else is going to is going to grant it. Right. It also seems, though, like like that speech that Kennedy gave was very much a catalyst of inspiration. Absolutely. Who's that for Absolutely. architecture <laughs> or the environment? Yeah. Or I mean, Elon Musk has been, and I don't especially like, I'm not a fan of Elon Musk, but he has certainly sparked the imagination of a whole lot of people yeah. talking about stuff like Hyperloop or, you know, they may be ridiculous, but he knows how to spark an excitement. <laughs> yeah, or going to Mars. Yeah. Yeah, going to Mars, exactly. 
that's that's uh, I think that's exactly what's needed for the built environment is somebody who's and it doesn't have to be a a single a singularity it has to be uh right. you know it could be any number of things but it doesn't seem like there's that I can think of somebody who's not there there's definitely instances of that at architecture firms but not yes. for the profession or not for the the built environment at large that has that kind of right. a, uh, of a platform or a stage that they stand upon right hmm. well maybe a listener of this podcast will be that yeah <laughs> yeah or suggest someone i mean i think that um I, I definitely use Twitter and it's interesting that, you, you know, this whole conversation came about because of Twitter. Mm-hmm. I definitely use Twitter to sort of keep up on what kinds of conversations are happening. And I know that, you know, the, the, the chatter about things like accessible cities and, and bike and pedestrian friendly and able and other able bodied accessibility. This is all stuff people feel enormously passionate about True. and building some of that energy into, um, yeah, pushing for funding or granting or the public good to take notice. I, I think that that energy exists. It's just, yeah, finding a way to, to tap into it and to get it organized. Yeah. So, hmm. yeah. More questions than, I mean, this is obviously just the beginning of a conversation like this, but I would love to hear yeah, what other people think about or how this, or what other directions this could go, um, because it does seem like there is a fundamental shift necessary to address the biggest problems of our time. And architects should have a seat at that table, but we have to want to sit at that table and we have to want to address those problems or at least try to figure out how to. Um, It seems to me like these are probably a lot more important than anything else going on that we could, you know, if you start to think about these problems as being multi-generational, Right or multi lifetime exactly. exactly. problems to yes. solve. Um, yes, that is really kind of the framing that needs to happen. And and interconnected problems because we have resource issues, we have labor issues. We ha- you know there's so many societal, uh, contextual relationships that come into play when you start to talk about any of these. So if you're thinking, you know, in a very small scale of just how do I keep my electric bill down? Well, you have to ultimately get out to a much bigger scale of how do we extract resources from the earth to do to do so and who does it for yes. us? So yeah. these things are incredibly intertwined and architects are good at doing that. That's the way we've been taught to think is to think very holistically about a lot of things. And so I think we are absolutely we should be at that table. Yeah. But yeah, we're going to have to to sort of push in and, and demand it. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, any ideas, well, listeners? Let, yeah, let's throw it out there. <laughs> well, maybe maybe we can we can start to wrap up. Can I ask you? I didn't ask you about this ahead of time, so I'm going to throw it at you now, and it, you can of course decline. I have two questions, and then an ask Please. of you at the end. So the first one that I'm using to kind of tie all these different episodes together and have my guest answer is. Share something that you do to help yourself perform better. It doesn't have to be tech. It doesn't have to be digital. It could be analog. It could be physical. Just anything that you do to help yourself get better, do better at what you do. Um, I uh, I ask a lot of questions. And I as I've gotten older, I've been less embarrassed about asking things that might might seem like an obvious or a dumb question. Mm-hmm. Um, because most of the time I realize that 
other people in the room also have the same question that I have. So basically, I'm not afraid to ask the question that might make me look dumb, <laughs> because it usually doesn't. Yeah. Usually, <laughs> so, yeah, there's other people in the room who who had the same question and are so glad that you asked that dumb question. Yep, and, they, yep. <laughs> and so I'm happy to set myself up as the fool who asks that because then it helps everyone else in the room. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's absolutely great because you're if if you don't have information that's necessary then how can you address what needs to be addressed? I think that's exactly it's so it and and it takes experience to get to the point where I think you just don't care about how yeah. you're going to look. Yeah. That's where I am now yeah. in my life. That's I'm great. 53 years old. I don't I don't care. <laughs> I just want to know. Learn that early in your life and you'll get yes. even farther. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So next question, who who are you listening to or reading right now who's influencing Donna? Um, I am listening to two bands that I've been loving. One of them is called Krongbin. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly because the spelling is really weird. They're a mostly instrumental instrumental group. Can you spell it? K, I think it's K, I'll email it to you when okay. I find it. I okay. think it's K-R-U-A-N-G-B-I-N, something like that, okay. Krongbin. Um, I'll email it to you or text it. Um, and they're just they're just mind blowing and cool. And awesome. then I've been listening to a band, and I say this with some trepidation, even though I just said to you, I'm not embarrassed to look, look <laughs> like the fool. There's this band called Lake Street Dive from Boston, and apparently they've been around for a long time. And I just heard one of their songs and completely fell in love, and now I can't stop listening to them. So they might be like a sort of they're kind of white person's soul, which is again a little embarrassing, but um. <laughs> but it's pretty soulful and it's really good. So those are my two newest bands I'm yeah, listening to. Good recommendations. Okay. In terms of music. Okay. And are you reading anything interesting that's kind of influencing your thinking or just inspiring uh, sadly, you? Sadly, it's not, this is not super helpful, but I'm reading, um, and I can't remember the name of the book. I'm, I mostly read fiction. Mm -hmm. And again, I'll have to just send you the name of the book because I can't, oh, zookeeper, zookeeper something about a zookeeper. Um, it's a story about a Polish zoo in World War II and how the Germans come in and invade and they take all the animals for their own zoos. And it's uh, giving me a real like historical sense. It's historical fiction, mm -hmm. historical sense of what it's like living in an occupied city. And with all that's going on in the country and the world right now with our leadership and politics, it's just I kind of feel like it's almost a, a a guide to something that may be coming. <laughs> so it's actually kind of sad, but it's fiction. Prescient. The Zookeeper's Wife, I think is what it's called. Okay. Um, and yeah, I tend to read fiction. I mean, yeah, The Zookeeper's Wife, that's what it's called. I, I read fiction because frequently when I read fiction, it helps me think about the things I'm actually working on at work or that I'm, you know, working on in my life. It's, it's, I use fiction as a way to sort of, you know, some people believe in astrology. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, but I will read a story and mm -hmm. I'll let the story sort of guide how I'm thinking about things. So, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting how those outside things can unlock yes. something that has, you've been working on for who, who knows how long, right? It's so That's interesting. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. It's about unlocking a different way of looking at a problem. Yeah. Interesting. So I go to fiction for that all Very the time. Cool. Very cool. All right. So last question, not really a question. Where can people find out more about you or follow along what you're doing online, anywhere? Well, Archonnect is my number one. Like I've been an editor at Archonnect for 
20 years, <laughs> almost 20 years. I think the site's been around for 20 years. Um, awesome. And I have been a contributing editor, editor at Archonnect, which means I, I just comment there a lot. That's what being a contributing editor means, is okay. I do a lot of commentary in the forums and I submit articles every now and then, but it's not like I'm a writer. I'm just a, I'm just a, an active person on Archonnect. Um, and I post there under my real name, Donna Sink, although... I started 20 years ago there. I was called Liberty Bell was my screen name. And sometimes I still post under that name as well. But it's pretty commonly known that Liberty Bell and Donna Sink are the same person. And then my Twitter is, I really try to keep my Twitter all about architecture. And I have an amazing group of architweeps, as we refer, uh-huh. including you, Evan, and all of the people that we both know together um, mm-hmm. in common. And uh, I, I love the Twitter interaction. I just feel like there's a whole lot of fun and and it leads to good, serious conversations like this one that happens on Twitter. So Donna Sink Arc is my handle on Twitter. And you have a podcast. And I do a podcast on our Connect Sessions. We've been we have been, you know, we have not been keeping up with it as well as you guys have been over at Arcaspeak. Um we uh, we have not done as many interview sessions lately, although um, we may be doing some more coming up here. Um, the Archonnect Sessions podcast, we just, when the pandemic started and everyone hit lockdown, we did a series where we interviewed people just on what they were doing. And almost all of them had been, you know, sent home to work remotely. We're trying to figure out some people have been laid off. It's just that that was a nice chance for people to sort of just get a sense of what else is going on in the architecture world. I, I'm, I'm such a booster of architects and our culture. I love what we all do and how we all think about the world in these much more complex ways than I think a lot of of other disciplines do because we have to bring so much to bear on what we design. So I'm just a huge booster of architects and a big fan of us. So I I, I like connecting with people in that way. Thank you for doing that. I I really feel like, you know, nobody asked you to do that. You don't have to do it. It's all because you you obviously get something out of it, but you provide Right. so much to so many other people. And so thank you. As do you. I mean, thank you for your this podcast and the other one. And I think, you know, whenever I comment on things or I am always thinking about not the, the other people commenting, but the people who are just reading and hopefully learning something right. about it. Absolutely. Yeah. I th- and, and I think we do that in our field. You know, we're a, a, a field that has been built on internships and, and um, mentorship. And I just think we need to keep doing that for each other. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation today. I appreciate it so much. I'll talk to you soon. Great talking with you. Stay safe out there. Stay healthy. Bye-bye. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.